Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on an unblushing theme recorded live. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. This summer, we are bouncing stories off a wall with tales told live on stage, without notes or inhibitions, in the walled yard of the old Idaho penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We're breaking through with stories of overcoming, recorded on August 31st, 2021, from our guest host, Beth Norton, and featured storytellers Amy Collinge and Emily Goss. At late night, we don't need no thought control, but we'll take some dark sarcasm straight up. It's Late Night Stories. Ladies and gentlemen, Beth Norton! Thanks, Jody. I appreciate that. I've never been I've never been brought up like that. Oh gosh. Um yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start tonight by since Jody got all the business out of the way by telling you my own little story of breaking through the wall. And to start, we're all gonna have to break through a wall. And that's because I'm gonna talk about politics. So let's just let that wall come up right now so that we can break it down later, okay? Uh, all right, we're all on the same page. I, uh, I took a job in December of this past year in the Idaho State House of Representatives. <laughs> yeah, that's an appropriate reaction, for sure. Uh, it sucked ass. Uh, I, um... My, my title was pool secretary, and there is not a pool in the state house, just to clarify. And they are not paying staff members to arrange the noodles and fold towels. Uh, that is not a thing. The pool refers to a group of legislators, so I was responsible for supporting about 24 representatives, um, and my pool was half Democrats and half freshman Republicans. And my wall, and by my, I mean our collective as a society wall, was partisanship. Um, one of the requirements of my job was to be nonpartisan so that I could effectively do it um, and support everybody equally. And I actually found a bit of relief in this, especially after the past year of being told co- constantly to pick a side. I felt, um, I felt a little bit of comfort in being told to not pick a side. And it actually wasn't too difficult for me to see people who had different political views as me, as people, and to work with them. Sometimes they did things that, um, you know, that impressed me or um, that uh, made me feel proud. Sometimes they did things that upset me, made me feel angry or disappointed, basically like most people in life, right? <laughs> um, and... Um, and, uh, and for the most part, it was easy. My job wasn't very hard. Mostly I was just helping like the freshman Republican connect, Republicans connect to the scanners because they couldn't seem to figure out how to do that. Um, and I did that a lot and, uh, and, um, and didn't have much trouble with that. There was one exception. Um, there was one exception to this, and there was one place that I did really struggle that I felt my wall come up. And that was with Representative Bruce Skog of Nampa, District 12. Um, if you don't know who that is, he—he look—he's a very nice man, um, <laughs> but he—he kind of looks like if Santa Claus were a lawyer, 
and and acts like it too and and uh, yeah very you know there's a high level of decorum and respect there there was never anything like personally wrong or anything but it was really some of the legislation that he put forth like he was very aggressive for a freshman a freshman uh, legislator. He knew how the game worked already. And uh, he also really utilized me in my position in a way that nobody else did. Like he had me setting up, you know, dinners at Capitol Cellar and, and sellers and, and inviting different representatives to get him on board with his bill. And one of the bills that he put forth pretty early on in the session, which is when my wall came up, was uh, the No Public Funds for Abortion Act. And if there's one issue that I am extremely passionate about, it is preserving the right to choose and the right to uh, access affordable birth control. This, I had to watch testimony for this bill. It was disgusting. It was the worst thing I'd ever seen. And it, was, it, it made me uncomfortable to be around him. Um, and I was really glad that I had to wear a mask all session. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been able to hide the look of disgust on my face. Um, you know, but I continued to do my job. I continued to work with him. I just really didn't enjoy it. And, um, and, and, um, and on and on, and so it goes. And uh, um, I wasn't very busy a lot of the time, and my, my supervisor was wonderful. She told me, when you're not busy, just bring a book. And I resisted that. Mostly I was like trying to look busy on my computer and stuff, like applying for other jobs. And... <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And, uh, but I just gave it, it was like four o'clock one day. Oh, most of the representatives have gone home and I, I had a book on my desk I was excited to look at. It was uh, called Three Simple Lines, uh, A Journey into the Heart and Homeland of Haiku by Natalie Goldberg. And uh, so I pick it up and I begin to dive into it and I learned that haiku is, um, immediately I learned that haiku is not really what we've made it out to be in the West. Um, the whole 575 thing just kind of Americanize it, cuts it down to this formula. Um, ja the Japanese um, formula of, of a haiku, the, the, the way that their language works, every character has a syllable and, and our language doesn't work like that. But the essence of a haiku is, is these three simple lines that are meant to bring you into the moment. And, and a true haiku does that. It kind of makes time stop and things fall away. And um, they say if you've written even five true haikus, you're a haiku master. Um, and that is like, you know, dating back thousands and thousands of years in this, um, in this practice. And um, I'm reading about this, and um, Representative Scog comes out of his cubicle, and he walks toward me, has papers in his hand and a smile on his face, as always, his unmasked face. <laughs> and uh, he, he, walks, he walks toward my cubicle. Uh, probably to ask me to scan his papers, and and I look up from the book um, unenthusiastically, and he stops and he says, "Oh, what what are you reading?" And I was like, "Oh, it's just a book about haikus," and he stops dead in his tracks, and he clutches the papers to his chest, and he looks up into the air, and he gets far away for a second, and he says very dreamily, "I used to write haikus." And for a moment, time stopped <laughs> for me, and my walls came down. I imagined this man like a younger man with dreams and like a good heart and, you know, thinking he was going to be a poet one day or, or something, just writing haikus. He, he said he had a book of them somewhere still, and... Um, 
And then he asked me to scan his papers. And, <laughs> and we moved on with the day. But after that, it was, you know, it, it was hard for me to unsee that once I saw that. It was hard for me to unsee the person behind uh, the politics uh, once I had seen that and some of, you know, that, that disgust and that um, irritation I felt working with him had dissolved. Um, and at the end of the session, he was actually the only legislator to come up and offer me a job in his law office. And I said, hell no. <laughs> the walls have not come down that far. I would rather wait tables, <laughs> Bruce Cog, than work for you. So um, they said I should now, this would be an appropriate moment when we were workshopping the story to, to do a haiku on this event. So I'm going to... I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try it out, you guys. Okay, jolly old lawyer approaches the help desk, remembers he writes haikus, then goes back to making shitty legislation. I don't, is that? I don't know, I'm a comic. Not a haiku master, so that's that one. That is my story. Please welcome to the stage, Amy Cooley. It was my second pregnancy. My first pregnancy had ended really early in miscarriage, and now I was seven months pregnant, and we were trying really hard to do everything right. We'd gone to our childbirth classes, we'd hired a doula, a birth coach to help us through the process. When that eventually happened, the baby was due in February, February 1st, and everybody told me I should expect Valentine's Day, because it's my first baby and she's gonna be late. Um, so it's December, and we're actually about to have a meeting with that doula, that birth coach, and there's this wild, wild windstorm. And we have this huge cypress tree in the front of our house, and it snaps. The top third of this tree breaks, um, and it doesn't break through any walls. It breaks into the street. Um, but less than an hour later, I stood up, and something snapped within me. <laughs> I felt this flood of, of fluid, and I've never wished so badly that I peed myself. Uh, I, we call the hospital, and they say, your water probably did not break, but just come in anyway and bring your overnight bag. Well, I didn't have an overnight bag because <laughs> I wasn't supposed to have a baby till Valentine's Day. Um, so we go into the hospital, and those next 24 hours are just uh, rapid fire. So they are really worried that the baby's coming right now. Um, they are trying to prepare me mentally and prepare my body. So the perinatologist talks to me, the high-risk doctor explains different things that might happen. The neonatologist comes and talks to me. So that's the pediatrician that works in the NICU with preterm babies. And um, she, she tells me that, you know, my baby has a pretty good chance of survival. <laughs> Um, but also, you know, starts to walk me through some of the problems that she might have if she's born this early. And what uh, the neonatologist tells me and the nurses tell me after these first 24 hours go by and my baby's still in there is that if we can just keep her in a couple more weeks, that's, that's going to be best for her. There's kind of like this magic window where she's not going to be too, too, too early. And so we made it through those first 24 hours. Everybody thought I was going to have a baby right then. And 
I am checked in to hotel hospital um, for December, and I, I start talking to my baby. So the amazing thing about losing all that amniotic fluid is that I can see her. So this cushion that's usually surrounding my baby is gone, and her, her little foot moves across my belly. And so, so I start talking to her. I say, we are not ready for you. <laughs> and if, if you could stay in just a little longer, like one week or two weeks or three weeks, you know, whatever, whatever works for you, we, we really need you to stay put. Um, and they've uh, given me steroid shots to help try to mature her lungs and they have me on antibiotics in case there's any sort of infection that has caused this spontaneous um, rupture of membranes they call it when your water suddenly breaks um, and so I'm just sitting in bed rest in the hospital um, and every day the nurses from the NICU come check on me there's this little baby warmer so like if, if your baby's born early, one of the things is they can have trouble regulating their temperature. So they have this little warmer that looks like an incubator or something for chickens just hanging out in my room. And the perinatologist comes and checks on me every day. Um, there's three of these high-risk doctors on duty, and we have our favorites and our least favorites. Um, but they come check, and we make it past a week on bed rest. Baby's in there. Um, they're putting these monitors on me every day to check her heartbeat, everything's okay. Um, so we go through one more week. The perinatologists check on me every day, the NICU nurses are checking every day, making sure the baby warmer's on. Um, and we make it to this magic number where uh, she would just be six weeks early, um, which uh, they've told us means that, that now her chances of survival are much, much better, her lungs are going to be stronger, and she's still probably going to have to spend time in the NICU, um, but uh, it, it would be okay if she was born now. And so my husband and I are talking to her, and we say, it would be okay now. <laughs> we understand you, you want to you come early, so it, it would be okay. Well, um, my parents fly into town. We were supposed to go on a little vacation before um, the baby was born. Instead, they wind up helping my husband finish remodeling our house um, while we're waiting for the baby to be born. And that night when they fly in, I start to feel some contractions. And I learned from the childbirth classes that I did take that if you're going into labor that you should rest because this could take a long time and it could... Um, it's going to be really exhausting, so it's, it's coming on evening, my husband's going to sleep. I've convinced the nurses and the doctors not to bother me all night um, because it's been so hard to sleep, so nobody comes in and bothers me, and I'm having these contractions about every hour, and in the morning, it's Christmas Eve, and I tell the nurse when she comes to check on me uh, that I, I think I'm in labor. I've, I've been having contractions all night. And she says, oh, okay. And they put the monitor on me, and she's like, is that a contraction? I'm like, I don't know. No. You know, she puts all these machines on me, and everything kind of stops. Um, and then there's shift change. She leaves. Another nurse comes on. Uh, the perinatologist doesn't come check on me. Um, 
and the contractions start up again. And my husband, who knows me so well, is, is looking at me and he says, I, I think we need to call the doula. I think, I think something's happening here. So he calls the doula and my husband and the doula are with me and I'm laboring and it starts to get really intense. I'm throwing up and uh, the nurse comes and checks on me and they're like, oh, do you need some IV fluids? You need to be drinking more water. You might need fluids. And I'm thinking, no, I, I think I'm in labor, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I don't want any IV fluids. And um, I'm also, I'm kind of trying to play it cool because if I had delivered right when we got to the hospital and any point up until now, uh, they would have had me deliver in the operating room so that they could immediately go to a C-section if they need to for the safety of the baby. Um, but I really want to be able to be conscious and walking and taking care of her. She's going to need a lot when she's born, so I don't want to be anywhere near the operating room. So I'm kind of walking, doing little laps around labor and delivery, saying please and thank you when I get my little cups of juice. And we make it back to our room where we've been staying for weeks, and I feel the baby's head descend. And, and I say to my husband and the doula, the baby's head is coming out! And the doula looks at me, and she presses the call button and says, say that again. And so I do. The baby's head is coming out. And the poor person on the other end says, well, where's your nurse? And I said, I don't know. Where's my nurse? And so nurse comes running, and I'm still fully dressed because I'm trying to play it cool. And she lifts up my skirt and says, oh, yeah, OK, you need to get on the bed. Um, and so I get on the bed, and she's paging people, paging Dr. Labarsky, paging Dr. Labarsky. That's the perinatologist that we haven't seen all day. It's Christmas Eve. And uh, there's the stampede of footsteps outside of the room. And the NICU nurses start arriving. The respiratory therapy team arrives. Uh, Obviously, my husband and the doula are there. There's a, about a dozen people in the room. I don't remember who all of them were. And the only person that's missing is the person who's actually supposed to deliver the baby. Um, and so the, the, the nurse calls again, any available OB or midwife, any available OB or midwife. And uh, there's more pounding in the hall. And this wonderful obstetrician shows up. And three pushes later, my beautiful baby is born. She's bigger than we could have possibly hoped for being so early. And I get to hold her on my chest for a minute um, before the, the NICU nurses who are watching like hawks tell me that she's having trouble breathing. They take her to that little baby warmer that's still there. And then they whisk her away to the NICU. And my husband goes with them. All, all these people disperse. And in the childbirth classes that we did take before my water broke early. They told me that childbirth is this huge deal. And then there's this afterbirth that comes afterwards. And it's like no big deal. Like you just sneeze, basically. And it comes out. It's so easy. Well, that wasn't exactly my experience. So after my, my baby was born, I still had a couple more walls to break through. And the first one was that my placenta wasn't coming out. They're tugging on the umbilical cord. It's not coming. And this lovely obstetrician who just got um, pulled into this at Christmas Eve lifts up her hand, and she says, I am so sorry. My hand is smaller than your baby's head. I have to go in and get the placenta. And 
So she does. Um, I, I forgot to say when I was in labor, they kept asking me, you know, what's your pain on a scale of one to 10? And I'm like, oh, six, seven, like it could be worse. A 10 is when she pulled out my placenta. Um, and she had to go in again just to make sure they didn't miss anything. And the, the poor nurse probably still has scars on her arm from letting me hold on to her so tightly when they did that. Um, so that was the first wall we had to break through. And then I finally got to go down to the NICU and see my baby. And she looked nothing like the beautiful little girl that I had just pushed out. Um, she was on all kinds of wires and monitors. She had a feeding tube. Um, they had all this like gauze and stuff on her head to try to keep the respirators on because she's so tiny and she's pulling everything out. She's on an IV. Um, and it was, it was really terrifying. And all I wanted to do was just stay there and be there with her. But they, they dragged me away. They said, you need to go um, get taken care of too. You just delivered a baby and she's fine. She's in good hands here. So they dragged me up to the postpartum ward. And I learned that that, that was a terrible place to be without a baby. It's all built for moms and babies, moms and babies. And I'd come to this hospital unexpectedly <laughs> weeks ago. There was no way I was going anywhere without this baby. So I got a breast pump. I pumped a little bit of the colostrum, which is the first milk that comes. Um, and they told me that when I did that, I could go down and see my baby. So I'm bringing her this little teeny tiny dropper full of this magical fluid. And there she is, looks like uh, this teeny tiny football player who's been in some sort of horrible accident. It's hard to see her in there. And I asked permission, can I hold my baby? And they say yes. And so I hold her. For the first time, without anybody waiting to take her away, and we just breathe. And we just kept breathing. <laughs> and her breathing got better and better. And we were in that NICU for two and a half weeks until she learned to eat and breathe and regulate her body temperature. And then we broke through the walls of the NICU and the hospital and brought her home and started our family. Please welcome Emily Goss. So, theater saved my life. I saw my first Broadway show when I was about three. <laughs> and I absolutely um, fell in love with it. And I studied as much theater as I could find. I, I studied and learned everything from Hammerstein to Sondheim, you can name the composer. Um, I wanted to find out any way possible to join the theater, theater industry any way I could. Um, as you can see, uh, I was born with a little condition called mild cerebral palsy. And it mainly affects my um, balance and fine motor skills and my ability to walk independently, which is super fun when it comes to adapting things. But anyway, venues and everything. And I, I just 
wanted to find a way to get into theater. Now, 10 years ago, there was little to no representation of um, performers with disabilities in theater. And so that's kind of where my little journey begins here. But um, basically my first kind of oh shit moment was um, I, I was having to go through um, my parents going through a very nasty, nasty divorce, moving from my childhood home and uh, graduating from high school all in the fall of 2012. And I pulled through everything to just have a happy face and get enough grades to get into BSU because I wanted to have a BA in um, theater. And at the end of that fall in 2012, I had to go to a thing called an IEP meeting, which was wrapping up my whole high school experience. And I was coming into that meeting at 7.30 in the morning. I was exhausted, but I had my college acceptance letter and all of my scholarships laid out. And I had that whole meeting with my um, uh, teachers, counselors, VPs, you name it. Um, to finally tell them the news that I had made it. And we had gotten through most of the meeting and the majority of the people in the room were excited that I was gonna move on. But there was this one um, vice principal that gave me this what the fuck look on her face. Like how in the world is she going to go to college? And she literally leans forward to me across the table and she goes, Emily, I thought you were going to the 18 to 21 year old program. Now, the 18 to 21 year old program is basically an extension of four more years of high school. <laughs> and uh, for people with, uh, for young adults at least with disabilities that don't quite qualify um, to move on to higher education. And I wasn't having none of that, <laughs> you know. I, I had everything planned, ready to go. I was done. And so I wrapped up that meeting and I just said, okay, thank you very much. I'm moving on. I'm going to BSU in August, have a nice life. And I had to do that. And so um, frequently, now moving on, I, for most of my life, I have to adapt everything that I do. I usually have a scooter or a walker or something to help me with mobility. And I have to constantly think about, hey, can I get my scooter in the door? Can I get it in the bat, like in a bathroom stall? Can I get it in the venue that I'm working in, performing in, in anything? But typically with CP, you have to learn how to adapt. And it's, it's a bit of a challenge. And when I went to BSU, it was a bit, it was no different. I mean, we had one fire drill in the Morrison Center. Oh, dear God. <laughs> um, love that theater to pieces. But there was a staging area for disabled people to wait for the firefighters to come and get you out from these massive, massive ass stairs. And I'm going, I have to wait? 
So I'm having to flag down my handsome guy friends to run me down the stairs. And I'm like, okay, screw it. I'm dropping the scooter. I'm dropping the purse. Oh, there I'm, there go with my hands. Um, and everything's flying and we, they get me down. And that's one of the things. Now, in August 2012, I finally got into the theater department. And I'm driving in with a bright red scooter. I have a service dog with me at the same time, who's an absolute diva. And I'm going, holy shit. I'm the very, I'm pretty damn sure that I am the first person in the department that is going to graduate with a BA in performance. I don't know how the hell I'm gonna do it, but we're gonna find a way. And so I drive in there, and one of the first people I see is my, or was one of my former um, uh, advisors, Darren Pufall, and he's absolutely glorious. He comes in, he goes, oh my gosh, we're so excited to have you, and it's going to be a beautiful experience. Talk to me if you ever need anything. We're, it's, it's a huge family. We're going to make this work. I said, okay, and I drove straight on. <laughs> now, the entire theater department had me working in every discipline possible. I mean, costume design, set design, um, set building, performance and different things, all sorts of things, um, sound board management, all of that. And, and one of the things was musical theater history that I absolutely loved. And I'm like, yes, finally something. But it was quite an adventure. But one of the things that they also had me work in was stage management. And that was an adventure in itself, because driving in the dark Danny Peterson Theater was quite a hoot. It was a teeny tiny space, but a beautiful space. But I had to learn how to not crash into sets, which I never did, <laughs> okay? And it was, it was just, we had to figure out how to learn it, how to adapt and make it work. And most of the professors at that time hadn't heard that perspective, but appreciated it. And um, one of the final requirements for me to graduate was uh, basically I had to um, uh, learn how to call a show. And in order to get there, I had to get into the top sound booth for the Danny Peterson Theater. At that time, 10 years ago, the booth wasn't there. Uh, the, the, the booth was there, excuse me. And there wasn't a lift in there. And so I had to learn to speak and teach with my advisors to get um, enough training in there to build in a lift to the Danny Peterson so I could physically call a show. And that was a huge wall to break through because that is there for future generations of kids, for of students that want to pursue theater. And we finally made that happen. And by the end of my senior year, they built it in. And they also built it in to the costume shop as well. And it was a beautiful thing. And it was just a tiny bit of change, but we learned how to adapt. And my, and my graduation interview came along shortly after my time there in 2016. At, after the four years, and the, uh, the uh, department head, Richard Clouch, at the time said, what are your future plans going to be moving forward as an actor? And I said, I've got, I've got plans to do voice acting and all these wonderful things, um, which I have been doing, but 
um, he did indeed tell me that I was the first student for in the entire history of the theater department, 20, 30 years or so, to graduate with um, a BA in performance and stage management and all that things, all, all of that qualification. And I broke through that wall to make that change. And I was absolutely floored. But I am so grateful to every single advisor that I had that helped me fly. But that also, that in itself basically says that regardless of challenges, you can push through. But this showed that on top of having seven orthopedic surgeries with my disability and everything, I had taught a, I had worked together with a theater department to make a change and adapt and to show for future generations that it is a possibility regardless of ability or disability that you can work in theater. But to end things, <laughs> essentially, I, I never really let CP define me or my disability define me. It's a part of myself, but it never took my ability away to tell, to, to take my ability to tell my story away. Didn't take my voice away. And that is the one beautiful paradox, double-edged sword of this whole thing. But that in itself, I am so happy that I got over. But that is the, that, that is the difference, that you do make the change. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't change it. So I'll see you on the boards. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Thanks to guest host Beth Norton and musical guest Kitchen Syncopation. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. Also, check out our YouTube channel. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. <laughs>